0: Del Raheem or Layla. <laughs> Hi, Layla. Yeah. How are you doing?
1: <laughs> Hello, Aragorn. Uh, great. And yourself?
0: Ah, not bad. It's a beautiful morning. Um, so we were just talking. Uh, actually, I, I, I'm just going to mention, because it's, it's very exciting. You know, California is on fire right now. And there's these very large wildfires going up. So I woke yeah. up this morning and the sun was coming over the mountains on the eastern side. And it was like a fiery red because of the smoke of the fires. And it it seemed to me a powerful omen for my day.
1: (laughs) Wow. Yes.
0: (laughs) So, before we started recording, we were talking about languages and whether or not French was your third language or not.
1: Yes. So, um, well, to recap, basically, Russian is my native mother tongue. And then English and Arabic where, because uh, my father was from Sudan, and then we went, uh, even though it was after independence, we went and lived in Sudan for a while. Oh, uh, well, I grew up there, actually.
0: Ah, um, okay.
1: And the school uh, that, but it was kind of on and off, so there were disruptions. That's why, like, the, the confusion with the languages. <laughs> Oops, I don't hear you.
0: No, on occasion, oh. I'll, I'll put mute on just so that I can drink.
1: Oh, okay, yours. okay. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah. So,
0: um, so, we then would... French, so then, French would be your fourth language.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. More complicated than that. English okay. and Arabic. We went to an Ita- the kids went to an um, a school run by Italian nuns. With a British curriculum, okay? With Arabic on Thursdays to prepare, and Arabic and religion and Islam were on Thursdays to prepare us for the Friday Muslim prayer. On Saturday we came back, and it was, you know, Christianity for the Sunday prayer. (laughs) And I was born in... An atheist Soviet country where I never heard the word God yeah. <laughs> or religion, and my parents didn't want to get into the whole explanation thing. And they was like, "Just you'll figure it out. You'll figure it out." <laughs> and so um, French. And then there was Sweden. My father did his master's degree in Sweden, so we lived in well a bit in Stockholm, and he did it at Uppsala University so we lived in Uppsala so there was Swedish in that mix and finally I decided I should really and I never actually I was very resistant to languages I didn't want to speak I found it useless I found like people lying like I spoke my mom was a linguist I spoke at like my first word at the age of three and a half and it was probably niet (laughs) because I was tired of them and so, um, it was. It was really kind of all these languages just thrown at me. And um, finally, I thought there should be a language that um, uh, I just pick for myself if I must know languages, and that was French.
0: Ah, nice.
1: And then there was Japanese when I lived in Japan for for a year.
0: <laughs> so you're a polyglot, uh, a hesitant polyglot
1: (laughs) yes hesitant reluctant (laughs)
0: yeah so i've actually uh uh there have been quite a few requests for me to have a conversation with you and i knew that that of course it was going to be relatively easy because we've met a few times and you know you're you're a very agreeable person um uh, but I, I didn't exactly like or, or enjoy the, the kind of the thing that people wanted us to talk about, which is some sort of hackneyed uh, conversation about John Zerzan. In other words, they wanted you to stand in as like a, a more pleasant uh, version of, of a John Zerzan conversation. That, of course, mm-hmm. is really what they're what they're getting at. Mm-hmm. But I actually don't see um, a lot of like like your project and John Zerzan's project are really different and um, this morning I was going over the introduction to your to your book that was just recently published a couple of years ago and you know while you definitely like describe a we'll say an ecosystem that sounds an awful lot like an anarcho-primitivist ecosystem, your intention does seem rather different and mostly, and, and of course this is my spin on it you seem to be more interested in the story than you are in necessarily, like um, the anthropology. Can you talk a little bit about what the, what you mean when you refer to the story, and perhaps uh, whether or not there's a tension between that and anthropology, or whether or not they're the same thing for you?
1: Oh, they are the same thing for me, and so um, yes, I I understand the the kind of it's certain Some circles want to talk only about Zerzan because, well, you know, this is their authority or this is their enemy uh, as they perceive it, okay? Um, then others want to talk about, uh, I don't know, anthropology. Others about uh, veganism. Um, and so uh, the thing is, for, for me, um, my... Just like I came into this whole language uh, complexity, uh, because it's uh, it's part of, of the world in which you know we are thrown, and we have to figure things out. Uh, the same thing with knowledge, like my um, with knowledge actually and uh, the reality, like for me the steps that led me to anthropology are actually uh really like i i did civil engineering i did journalism of war i worked with the refugees uh the displaced from different wars like uh from eritrea from south sudan from chad uh, when i was in sudan and um my problem always was that if I could I not do something without totally understanding uh, what is the meaning of my actions. And the action, the meaning, meaning like how do you know the meaning of something? It's not something that like I make up and I say, well, this is the meaning I attach to like me stepping on your foot, for example, right? Um, maybe I think, I, or Chinese foot binding is a, is a brilliant example, okay? There's a meaning attached to why people do this, but the real meaning emerges from the experience and the effect, the manifestation of those decisions and those actions in the social relationships within the species, within the cultural group, but also among, like, uh, in the world, in the ecosystem. And so, for me, then it's very interesting that uh, in civilization, at a certain point, and this i I became it became really crystal clear when I was working in journalism of war, how it is the story, the way the narrative is framed, that is going to give meaning that is completely detached to the experience of the humans and non-humans suffering from that war or from advents of civilization like dams and roads. And so for me, they're intertwined. As for my differences with John Zerzan, um, I wouldn't say that we want different things. I believe actually, and this is why you know, for me, I don't feel animosity to most thinkers. Like, no no matter how different or um, ideologically, like in an opposite spectrum uh, they may seem to belong. Because in the end, um, most of us want the same thing.
0: Yeah, I actually said that that your projects were different, not that the yes, yes. disagreed. Yes, yes. Yeah. Your project is one of literature, and and it's sort of, it's a pretty different orientation than John's is. In other words, like his interest in literature is non-existent, as far as I can tell. Um,
1: well, it is, but uh, he's not, yeah, it's not the, like, primary focus. Uh, for me, Anthropology, like this is the whole, um, my, my whole project, my it was doctoral dissertation and this book, um, where to understand what is the story of anthropology. So for me, anthropology uh, and socioeconomic paradigms and literature are actually aspects of the same project civilization. So maybe, yes, I'm looking at the different, like, um, different nexus of how knowledge gets refiled. And John looks maybe more, um, he's a historian, so he looks at the history of how um, people lived and, and what are the possibilities.
0: So, obviously, most literature that you're talking about is, the, is you know, as you say, the literature of civilization. Do you, do you find that there's, that there's types of literature that you have interest in or that, that you discovered that sort of evades, sort of necessarily being encompassed, encompassed by civilization? In other words, like, uh, is there anything in the realm of indigenous literature or, or other literatures that, that you like that sort of, yeah, that at least begin the process of escape? You seem to mention children's literature.
1: Yes, uh, children's literature, indigenous literature. Um, okay, so let's say, um, how, how to put it into words? It's not that, uh, like, when we look at civilization today, um, the the latest the num- figure I have is 83% of wilderness has been destroyed and taken, engulfed by civilization. And so the the remaining 17 or less percent is still circumscribed by our practices, defined by our practices. It exists according to our will because we have decided that this is not going to be taken over completely yet but probably soon it will be. Okay. So how can we envision anything at this point, like this cancer has grown, this tumor is like engulfing the world. How can we envision anything that is untouched by its um, by surroundings? And so eventually what what happens is that even, like, all the resistance becomes resistance and becomes defined by the battle, by the struggle. So in a way, you are no longer wild because you are, um, like, you're. it's like an immunity system that is all in defense. And the defense, once you're in defense, that's like to use, uh, you know, martial, military, once you're in defense, you're defined by the moves and the strategies of the attacker. Okay, um, the story... So that that's, like, just, to, you know, to, to be realistic. Uh, there are some stories that attempt to carry a, a more empathetic, more, um, say, coherent understanding about civilization and the wilderness. Um, they are still... Tran- transmitted through civilized means, which is language, which is literacy, which is the story, which is narrative. Um, so, yes, I I look at the principles that they try to convey. And for me, this is what's important, the principles. But how are we going to apply these principles? So I don't want people to be misled and think that, oh, well, if I go and read mumian books to my child to to my children then the world will be a fine place that's it, we've overcome civilization it's like, (laughs) no I'm looking at the principles and even in indigenous stories I mean, that's also another thing, people tend to idealize, and again, who tends to idealize the the First Nations people Um, it's the colonizer, the civilizer, right? So it's going to be what the impression we have is going to be also focused on what is convenient for the colonizer. Even,
0: yeah. So let's slow down a little bit because you've sort of ascended immediately into a kind of vocabulary that that almost every sentence you say, I I want you to define your terms. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, and and I realize it's it's challenging because, of course, you know, you're in a specialist profession, and and it it, it uh, encourages you to use words that that I think are super loaded. Um, so let's let's slow down and 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 let let me ask you a maybe a simpler question. Mm-hmm. Um, w- tell me about how you became interested in or involved in the anarchist space, and then from there how you became interested, or, or how you knew about anarcho-primitivism. Did did they happen around the same time, or was there a process?
1: Um, what do you mean by anarchist space?
0: Well, I, I mean, to start with, uh, the simplest definition would be a space of people who associate with, with each other and who self-describe as anarchists.
1: Um... Well, I associate with a with a wide spectrum of people. Um, it's um, so
0: there wasn't a time that you necessarily associated with anarchists outside of going to, let's say, the the Montreal Book Fair.
1: I live pretty much on my own. <laughs> um, it's true that, for example, when my kid was uh, younger, uh, there were a lot of events um, like skill sharing knowledge sharing university of the streets so those kind of events um we'd go to mostly because like for her to have access to these things i mean we we didn't have you know much resources and uh, we didn't want to put her in school and so we had to be creative and um we share a lot of the principles with with these people but also but 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 we're st- we're still immigrants, and uh, even in those spaces, uh, a woman immigrant. Um, so it's like ap- apart from that, uh, in terms of just like physical presence and association. Like yes, I understand a lot of the struggles. I support all. Like um, in principle, I support you know, all attempts at, uh, you know, exiting the unjust system. But a lot of these, my critique is that a lot of these attempts lack the depth and the understanding of what are you ready to give up. And so most people, uh, whatever they, you know, uh, uh, adherence they claim to whatever cause, are not ready uh, to really question uh, the whole predatory uh, relationships that, you know, civilization fosters. So that would be... But to go to your question specifically, uh, I would also like to point out that, okay, uh, in Russian thought, anarchism, nihilism, you know, all of these in spite of Soviet Union and the fact that, yes, there was censorship, nonetheless, I find um, the Soviet Union was much more open to really interesting critiques. And, for example, you know, Kropotkin, Bakunin, there are monuments, there's a metro station in Moscow in, in, uh, in honor of these people. Um, so I was familiar, like any, anyone from, you know, who grows up in Russian culture is familiar with these uh, ideas and with these people and with, with these theories. Also in, in Sudan and in Soviet Russia, I would say almost like everyone was an anarchist. Nobody trusted the press, nobody trusted the state. Mm-hmm. It's it's a cultural thing. It's like you like you know people come here now have to immediately like well you know uh, pledge allegiance sure. to this like in Canada to to the Queen in the states it's like I don't know to whom to the, fl- <laughs> to the flag to the flag and you know <laughs> to the war sure <laughs> you know and these people suddenly forget when in times during civil war I was a young woman and I felt safe because no people just were together people didn't trust what like what the official narrative and this is very interesting to me so coming here with that experience and taking it to its logical conclusion for me. Okay, I'm going to be, if I'm not going to trust anyone, then I am really not going to trust anyone. I'm going to try and figure out how do we get at the truth of the matter. And so, in a way, I'm an anar, an, an epistemic anarchist.
0: Okay. And, and what does that mean to you?
1: Well, to me, it means that I have to be um, basically. I, well, I have to. If, if I believe in something, my actions have to follow up.
0: Okay. Okay. So
1: and there are costs, like huge costs, involved to. <laughs> no, no. To be,
0: yeah. I, I actually want to go to, further down this down, yes. down this path because this is, to me, the more interesting question than than what labels we use and all the rest. Mm-hmm. So, so I also agree that the that you know words have consequences and if you say that you are something that, that it that it means that it means something in terms of what it is that your action is. But I probably disagree with you on mm-hmm. on and I and in your writing you actually use the word oppression. Mm-hmm. And you talk a lot about the origins of oppression and different kinds of oppression and obviously the the, the thing that you end up talking a lot about is, is veganism. But actually, just, just to hear you say it, how does um, uh, understanding that oppression exists have consequence in terms of your action? Because, of course, there's an awful lot of oppression to choose from.
1: Um, I'm, I'm not sure I understand what well, this, you're this, getting at.
0: The simple line would be, I'm an anarchist, I'm against oppression, that means that I want to not uh, express oppression in my life, and so what that means is that uh, I eat a vegan diet.
1: Oh, uh, did I ever say that?
0: No, no, I'm not saying that that you said that, but but obviously we're talking about a definition of anarchism that that reflects itself in your practice, and so I'm I'm asking about what, what that looks like, how you'd express that today.
1: Um, well, you know, it seems people, um, okay, yes, I do, me- I do mention vegan diet in my, um, in my work, for example, in understanding, okay, um, the different uh, cultures of subsistence out in the wilderness and how do they work and, and, uh, what is the place of predation there? So, I usually talk about mostly folivory, frugivory, gatherer um, subsistence, foraging, uh, in terms of like primate cultures, and humans are primates. Um, When I talk, like to specify that foraging can be um, scavenging for flesh or just gathering fruits and berries, then, yeah, I I kind of juxtapose, uh, well, this is vegan gathering or or foraging, and that is carnivore scavenging. So um, I don't really understand why people keep jumping at me with agricultural veganism, because I never support agriculture. And I don't... Uh, Actually, the... So...
0: Leaving yeah. vegan vegan outside the conversation because I'm not interested in attacking you for your veganism. Um, my my question is much more about oppression. Is a really huge term. And, and Oppre-
1: how, Yes, oppression.
0: How, how do you approach the question of how your practice is not oppressive if that's how you would would say it, or put it in the language that you prefer?
1: Um. But which practice are you talking about?
0: your life practice I mean like I I, I guess I guess I thought I thought that the question that I asked was uh, sort of how do you understand your anarchism and you you said that you understand it maybe epistemologically or
1: epistemically and that yeah and and
0: then I asked what that meant and you and you said something along the lines of that it, it means that it's about how you Practice, how, what you're doing, how I life. live,
1: yeah, how I, I live know. my life. For I live you. my life in civilization, and uh, unfortunately, yes, uh, if I do get access to food, it's going to be uh, through, obviously, like now I'm in North America, in Canada, actually, um, in winter most of the stuff is uh, imported, mm-hmm. so um, I don't have access to land, and actually I don't believe um my me getting access to land and foraging is going to solve anything on the contrary it's going to be part of the problem of oppression because we are already overwhelming um the earth with our biomass uh with our footprint um there's hardly any possibility for wilderness to exist. So for me then, oppression is a system that is a hierarchical system of um, what I call in my work the food, the predatory food chain. So the predatory food chain puts different predators on different um, steps. And so who has the top Ultimate Predator has access to everything and everyone. And those are the you know, the rulers of the world, the, the richest people. Sure. Um, then there are those who serve them, who have interests, who also own. Then there are those who serve to protect the, the military. Um, they, get, they don't get as much access to resources uh, beneath them because obviously you know that that wasn't in the in the whole um, program of oppression. so they are oppressed by being domesticated to serve enough to serve and defend uh, the rights of of these predators. Um, you know and so like the hierarchy is very clear and then at the bottom there at, at the so at the bottom of the human, scale uh, come all the you know the displaced and the homeless and below them then there's the animal kingdom so that epistemic hierarchy is um, is completely um, is uh, materialized in our socio-economic hierarchy okay so for me then yes
0: I, I guess the distinction that's important for me to draw is yes. to talk about the difference between your life and your practice and the systems uh, of authority and/or oppression that are around us. Yours, yeah. So I, I'm I'm excited to hear you talk about your daily life. How you think? You mean how I live, or how? I I don't need you to do an audit. I'm much more interested in how you make, how you think through the decisions that you make.
1: Well, you know, <laughs> I'm kind of coming close towards the bottom of the hierarchy. I don't have many choices
0: okay, that's fair. for
1: my decisions, and when I do get some choices, I I take the difficult choices in order to avoid participation in oppression. For me, I'd rather eat less than, you know, contribute to something that I believe has, you know, these ramifications. So, um, I don't want to go into detail because it will be voyeuristic. People, uh, I find people don't have empathy, for me especially. Um, I don't have any solidarity from most people and so, uh, it's been years that I just, like, don't share. But um, trust me, it's like, uh, in, at my level, to make those decisions, it's huge cost. The cost is humongous.
0: I, um, uh, just to share a bit of my own personal biography, I have been a lifelong uh, straight-edge um, and for 20 years I was a vegan so I'm not entirely unsympathetic to those types of the conversation. But but what I'm interested in is why does a conversation around what does our daily life look like always turn into a conversation about our diet? Because I yes. in fact don't spend that many hours of my day eating. I spend, <laughs> for instance, more hours of my day staring at this fucking screen. Right? <laughs> I mean, just to be just to be blunt, I spend more hours of my day sitting in a chair, right? Which I know is killing me. <laughs> Absolutely, you know.
1: Yeah, and so um, for me, when I talk about sacrifices, it's not sacrifices related to the fact that I don't like uh, I, I don't consume animal products. Um, but uh, it's sacrifices that, for example, in winter, it's very difficult to support our local farmer. Who is, um, you know, shares a lot of the pro- like tries to contribute to the ecosystem of the island, and you know, share the produce with non-human siblings, and uh, it's it's very costly, and so you end up like, okay, do I get this carrot this week, or do I just skip and wait for next week? You know, um, it's it's um, it's not only, but. It, the reason why I say that it's really important to understand the whole system of oppression and how it is based on the fact that for anthropocentrism and for this whole human supremacy system to exist, there must be somebody who will be offered, and this is in my book, I talk about you know, that the importance of the sacrifice in all of the religions uh, of civilization, regardless, yeah, yeah. not only monotheistic, polytheistic. People, people um, say, okay, Hinduism is a vegetarian diet, but Hinduism uh, evolved uh, from being an animistic, nature-oriented um, gatherer tradition ...towards a brutal civilization with castes. Sure. And so, obviously, um, the conception of sacrifice is going to be maybe t- expressed differently... ...in that religion than in, say, monotheistic or Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. But the principle is there. And this is why I call people for people to really examine the principles which are projected there... And which we adopt in our lives, in our diets, in our relationships to each other. And so the fight against oppression for me is rewilding. And rewilding is not like running with a bow and arrow or going into the last remnants of the forest that's almost non-existent to gather berries. That's not it. The rewilding has to start from ourselves. How we perceive, we are, how we per- conceive of the space we inhabit in the city. How much are we going to diversify it? And how are we going to make it equitable? Equitable not by, like, oh, I purchased fair trade coffee. No. Equitable in the sense that what we as humans are giving other species and humans that are not useful for us makes it okay for them to live, even if we get less, even if we sacrifice. Because at this point, we have to pay back.
0: Okay, so so this is great. This is, this is exactly what I want to talk about, because you basically do have a theory of how to get from here to there. In other words, you do offer an answer to the person that asked the question, well, what do I do? And and your answer on some level is rewild where you live.
1: And yourself. And your economic relations. And by economic relations I mean not only the Marxist material relations of, I give you this, our economy has been so, like, that's why this whole system of oppression is so effective, is that the economy is uh, structured through symbolic I- exchanges, through cultural exchanges, um, material um, access to public space is is part of that economy of who gets, who gives what in order to access spaces, emotions, minds of other humans and non-humans. So the rewilding is really... It's, it, it's, it's not only like planting tomatoes in the backyard. That's, that's agriculture. That's not rewilding. Planting a roof garden is still like part of civilization. You're, you're doing it for yourself. Who else is going to, to benefit from it? But how do you really make it wild and diverse and viable for life, and not only for your short-term current re- interests.
0: Uh, okay, I, I'm not sure I understand, because it sounds like you're both describing a rewilding that is very much within this world, at the same time that you're judging rewilding that's agricultural or very much in this world. So I, I guess, do you, do you draw a line between...
1: I don't judge because, okay, uh, with, um, first of all, like, I'm I'm realistic, okay, so we cannot look at the past and say, okay, uh, 15, 20,000 years ago, uh, or before hunting, you know, 70,000 years ago. Things were like that, and so today, now we're going to do this. Uh, we cannot say that, okay, I have okay. The past is gone; has nothing to do. Today we are like this, and therefore we carry on with what is not like. Both arguments um, are in incomplete. If you combine those arguments, by the way,
0: I totally agree with that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So if we combine those arguments, however, we say, okay, we are at this stage. But, and we, have, we know that things have been different in the past. Okay, starting from this stage now, what can we realistically do? Uh, well, you know, and I try to avoid saying before the collapse, well, the collapse is already like has hit, like I've seen collapse in Africa, I've seen it in Asia. Um, a lot of ecosystems and, and human societies have collapsed. So it's only like the privileged can can say like okay the collapse will happen in the future. Uh, the collapse has happened. How are we going to rewild those spaces and ourselves and our relationship to those spaces and to those humans and non humans? Um, and part of it m- might be intentional agriculture, but if if the people who do that believe that by planting tomatoes on the roof, that's it, they have rewilded and they're like, like so smug and happy with themselves, well, you know, it's it's a non-pass. Um, where do you take this further? How are we going to affect, um, for example, okay, now there are some attempts at uh, giving some spaces in Montreal uh, to wilderness, like a little swamp in downtown, and we got foxes back and everything. But if the people around have not been rewilded in their their anthropology, um, they freak out when they see the foxes. They want them out. They run them over. The, the raccoons, the, scu- the the last remnants of, of, uh, you know, they're not wild because, mind you, they're in the heart of civilization. Um, but they are the reminders of resistance of what what it's like to resist civilization and try to claim it back for life, not for you. So, so I'm,
0: I, I actually, yeah, I'm going to reset the conversation. Yes. Again, before we were recording, you said something that I found very intriguing. I lost you. Yeah, I said oh, yeah. Uh, uh, you said something earlier that, that was really intriguing to me that I would love to hear you flesh it out a little bit. Because you were using rewilding in almost the exact same sense that most people use the term decolonization in modern parlance. But earlier on, you were referring to your father in Sudan. Um, Uh, talking about decolonization and in that sense decolonization had a very different sensibility in the in the Soviet era and in in the era of quote unquote third world national liberation struggles so I would love to hear your thought about the progression of the term and the thought process around decolonization from there to to rewilding today
1: oh that's that's a really good question actually this is the reason why in uh, in this because th- my first book i just mentioned these terms as systems and and how education transmits you know how colonizes the mind and, and the, of the resources uh and then uh that was the pressing issue uh the reason why i decided to include that the root of it all in the in the second book uh and dedicated several pages to discuss coloni- to discussing colonization after having discussed civilization and, re- and wilderness uh, precisely because they are interconnected but they again um, a lot of say like let's say the ethnography of oppression and colonization is accurate because it draws on on the experiences and the facts of of how, Um, a system of extracting resources functions. And, you know, say in Great Britain when they discovered the rest of the world, how they got around to building such um, an effective and efficient infrastructure to extract resources and to convince the locals to work on on behalf of the metropole that was not there. And this is... But the problem is that that ethnography stops at humans and doesn't consider how humans... How this is a necessary expansionism. Domestication of the resources is exactly the same thing on different levels between humans and between humans and non-humans and because civilization its economy is unviable it's, it runs on deficit that uh, expansion is going to be to always keep on growing and there will always be resistance and so because humans nonetheless at a certain point Africans got their status on as humans because before like when colonization was happening, they were considered the rest with the animals. That's why you could sell them, own them, kill them, rape them. Um, And so the minute they moved up in that hierarchy of humanism, then it became easier for them to demand the same rights as the humans at the expense of the non-humans. Same thing with the Irish. When they came to North America... They were resources, they were not white. The minute they could step up in that humanist hierarchy from non-white to white, they could get an edge over the non-white humans and the rest of the non-human world. So um, there are these different degrees that blind us, like people get stuck in discussing these little issues, which are correct. Nobody argues with them. But if you do not zoom out to see how this is inevitable, and if you are going to liberate one group, another group will have to pay more because that is the nature of civilization. That is, that is the colonization of everything that is living and non-living. How are we going to, instead of scrambling up to the top predator status, get in solidarity with the non-human, with the bottom strata, and liberate and rewild. This is what rewilding and colonization is, and ultimate decolonization. So,
0: again, I'm I'm sure... And if you're
1: interested in Sudan... That I, I can just like uh, add a few things. Yeah. Well, Sudan is a is a brilliant example of this because they in, uh, inherited colonial borders, they got um, their status of now like not only humans, now <clears throat> a nation state amongst nations. And what happens immediately is that the extraction, and the deforestation starts growing, even that was um, déclenché by the colonizer, now it started growing at a much higher speed because there is more incentive to get something for ourselves and to feed the, the top predator in Europe. Um, it, civil war, the second civil war, now separation of the two Sudans, it doesn't help. All of these struggles help for a moment, but in the end, um, South Sudan is now in a worse state than ever before, and it is going to get worse for everyone.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean anyone who, who studies what's happening in Africa, I mean, realizes that, that, uh, Almost all of the conflicts that happen there seem to result in in a worsening state of <laughs> affairs for the people who actually live there. Um, but but you know by and large that's because of the strange way in which Africa became a place of nation states. You know just in the past hundred years and almost entirely through colonization.
1: Yes, uh, but they are subscribing to the project civilization. Without understanding that that is fraught with disaster and collapse, instead of questioning and aligning with and and that is both a problem of as an of state, but as an anthropologist, I also know it's a problem of people. People subscribe to that project. People who are dying in. Um, and not everyone, mind you. Like, there are a lot of anarchists and anti civ and, and anarcho primitivists, uh, but these are not the voices that are even acknowledged in the larger narrative, in the story of civilization. And so, um, the majority then subscribe to this project. And everyone thinks, it was interesting. Um, uh, Friends, friends of uh, ours in Moscow. So uh, they, they were like descendants of serfs. And during the Soviet time, um, they climbed up the ladder. They got like nice apartments, uh, uh, a, a huge apartment actually in uh, downtown Moscow. Like really, like now it's like millions of dollars. Um, so they worked as engineers. And they got like, access to medical and, you know, apartments and education and everything. And so in Perestroika time, uh, there, like, they were devout communists. All of a sudden, like, within two years, switched allegiance, dire libertarian capitalism. That's what we want. And I'm like, okay, like, I don't subscribe to any kind of state communism or, you know, I'm I'm beyond that. But I I, I see the positive in what was attempted then. And uh, especially for these people. Like, I don't have anything in Moscow. They do. And they're like, how can you then subscribe to the same feudal system that resulted in you being the serfs, you know, under the Tsar? And the answer was, well, but now we won't be. and like, but the majority of the people will be. And maybe you, because you inherited something from the state, you won't be. But that is the rule. But no, because we won't be or we might have a different chance. We don't know. It's a gamble. But we will get the best. And they subscribe to it.
0: I mean, this is a classic uh, phenomenon in the American system. I'm, I'm sure there must be an equivalent in Canada, but but that's that most poor people in the U.S. consider them to t- consider themselves to be temporarily uh, embarrassed millions. Yes,
1: exactly, exactly. Yes.
0: Um, I mean, this is the the, the mythology, the, the the carrot that 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 persuades most people to embrace
1: the capitalist system. Yes, and uh, the uh, th- that's why for me it's like you you bring you bring the state down and you will have Mad Max. Okay, the problem Mad Max is a brilliant film and it shows us like what is the possibility, sure. but it's not the only possibility. It should not be presented that this is like uh, as. You know, this is exactly what it's going... It is going to be like this if you do not question the narrative, if you will rewild yourself, reorganize your economic systems to include life and not your predatory, you know, appetite. Did,
0: did you uh, ever get a chance to read the, the small little book, uh, Desert... No. Oh, you should check it out. It's it's basically uh, uh, a, an alternate story along the lines of you know if anarcho-primitivism is an alternate story, or uh, it's an alternate uh, green anarchist story um, mm-hmm. that has that, that basically talks. Yeah, it, it, it talks along the, along the lines that, that I think that you'd be interested in. I oh, wh- who's the author? Uh, it's, anon- it's anonymous, but it's posted on the Anarchist Library and oh, library. Pretty, okay, I'll pretty, check e- it. pretty easily available. But the actual question that I, I'd like to ask, that, that, that you really raise for me in a pretty strong way, <clears throat> a lot of anarchism relies on rational argumentation to make its point. And, and, you know, we live in an era where rational argumentation doesn't seem to be a particularly compelling Way to make political points.
1: <laughs> I I see where you're getting. <laughs>
0: um, I, I mean, I guess what does that mean? You know, for for generally any sort of libertarian model. <laughs> but but you know, in particular, you know, you're really making lots of rational arguments, and and I'm I'm <laughs> yeah yeah I, I don't almost see the audience for it anymore.
1: Um. Well, it's also, yes and no. And there are days when I feel like, okay, like the French word, se foutu, okay, that's it. It's all gone. Nice word. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, Um, but those are the days when, because we are so stratified uh, within this whole system of predation. Um, there are, like, really, um, pu- like, <laughs> this punishment involved in resisting the story, resisting it, the story in fact, in yes. action. Yes. And the the punishments are different. Like, for example, uh, in the states they shoot you. Here in Canada, they slap you with fines that make you indebted for life. <laughs>
0: sure.
1: Okay, like, it's all peaceful, and nobody, like, uses the baton. Well, every now and then they do. Um, But, um, and so we tend then to conglomerate uh, with people who have equal, kind of, are ready to take an equal um, cost, to share that equal cost. So, obviously, uh, that's the reason why, say, black people do not find it rewarding to be in the same front lines with white people for the same struggle because they will they know they will carry the burden of the price or the cost of that resistance um, and the way that the white people will be punished too but within their circles it is a different kind of punishment it is it, it obeys a different, say, like, currency rate. Yeah. Yeah. Logic and cu- logic and currency rate. Like, what they have to give up for that. And so, um, and then we get, like, scattered. Um, but every now and then, um, I do realize there are much more people ready to take on the critique, ready to, to examine what their lives mean like to existence to their own meaning and to the meaning of the world Um, but we don't get access to those people and then yes I critique technology but ironically it has been both the ultimate oppressor and also the ultimate connector how do we again get beyond that dependence like this is the question people again thinking either or either we are using the technology and the Internet and the connections and that's said it, therefore it's good because how are we going to survive without it well and there are people who are taking these critiques and these attempts to real life but then that's also the risk of that the others will kind of lose track of them.
0: So, I usually try to keep these conversations to about an hour. Yes. And it's worth reflecting on the fact that about ten years ago you published some some things that were sort of like speaking to the anarchist milieu um, that are easy to find. You then uh, obviously finished your PhD and spent too much time in the university and speaking to those people.
1: Um, oh, actually, that's that's not true. I didn't like the university. I was attached to it because I was paying tuition, but I was sitting doing my research at home and on the street <laughs> and in the library. <laughs> I didn't have much time with university. Yeah. But I'm curious.
0: I'm curious in, in terms of what's what does your next ten years look like? Are we going to see? Uh, further research and and writing along the lines of what you've done up till now? Or do you have different projects that
1: you're hatching? Yes, I have one project that I want to finish um, and that's like basically based on on the research I've collected and didn't go into the previous two works. So um, I hope to to be done with it now. Uh, But I already started working uh, I have a few other Projects, both academic, well, academic in the sense that, you know, I will submit them to a, a process that will be accessible both for academics and for the wider public, and other uh, projects that will be just, um, you know, maybe fiction and non-fiction.
0: So, are you mostly working on fiction-type works, or like, what's the content of, of what you've done since the since the, the book that was published last year?
1: So, uh, the current the book I want that I'm working on and I want to finish this year uh, is going to be on the uh, basically clarifying the economic foundation of knowledge and uh, the institutions. That are responsible for domesticating it and us Um, and basically evolutionary theory and conceptions of evolution so that will be uh, also a comparative uh, project because i'll be considering arabic and russian thinkers um, um, and others japanese interesting team uh, primatologists Uh, so i'll be basically revisiting my Old uh, research as well, you know, in all these countries. And um, basically, it will be anarcho primitivism with an, what is it even? Like a Marxist lens, but it's not Marxist in the classical Marxist and it's not neo Marxist. Like Marxist in the sense that where Marx uh, uh, paid huge attention to the economic foundation of human relations. Leila, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you very much, Aragon. It was a great pleasure.